If you don't mind, would you turn with your Bibles to Matthew chapter 24? And I, I want to begin by reading uh, verses uh, 21 and 22. Matthew chapter 24. And if you don't mind, would you stand with me as we read this together? The text reads as follows. It says, For then there will be great distress. Actually, that's the NIV translation. Uh, the Greek word lipsis is often translated tribulation, or we get our term great tribulation. There will be great distress or tribulation unequaled from the beginning of the world until now, and never to be equaled again. If those days had not been cut short, no one would survive. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be shortened. Let's begin with prayer. Father, I ask as we uh, take some time tonight to look at the events of the tribulation period, that your Holy Spirit would uh, enable me, Lord, uh, empower me to do it uh, simply and clearly in a way that is comprehensible. Lord, we are doing this study because we really want to comprehend or grasp the hope of our calling. And we want to order our lives around the realities of where this world is going and we pray, Father, that you would give us that wisdom and that grace. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, this evening, last week, we talked about uh, pre-tribulation events. And tonight, we want to talk about the events of the tribulation. And in some ways, this is going to be easier. In other ways, it's going to be harder. It's easier in the sense that the information is laid out pretty clearly. Uh, I, I would say at least it's laid out in a pretty sequential order, so it's not hard to follow the flow of events. But at the same time, there are so many different things that are outlined in detail, and some of it is a little hard to grasp, and so I'll try to explain it simply enough. But as I was doing a bit of research and going on the web, my first thought was if I could just find some graphs or charts that clearly lay it all out, that might simplify it for people. And every single one I looked at left me confused. I mean, there's just so many things in there. And I'm not just talking about people tend to see different things in a, in a different order, but also because uh, there's just such a flow of repeated events. It's almost like hammered blows that are coming down upon the earth. And that's why the passage that we read where Jesus, where we get our term, the great tribulation, uh, tells us that this is going to be a time of unparalleled difficulty. There's nothing that can be likened to it. And, and in a way, I would have to qualify that a little bit by saying, yes, there are things that man has seen. There are earthquakes and uh, famines and pestilences and those things that have happened throughout human history. But again, it's the statement that these things are going to be transpiring around the world. This is going to be a series of events that are going to be shared by everyone. They're not going to be localized to certain times and circumstances or places. It's going to happen all over the world at the same time. There's going to be a mutual experience around the planet. But I wanted to begin with basically a slide that uh, gives kind of an overview of the entire period and then we can work, uh, work our way down. Uh, essentially, we talked about last week some of the pre-tribulation events. I have a pointer so that it might even make it easier for those of you who don't read from left to right. But uh, uh, we talked about the rapture and the battle of Gog and Magog, which I believe both take place prior to the beginning of the tribulation. And we'll get into talking exactly where I think the tribulation actually uh, kicks off. But we find that there are basically, uh, first of all, seven seals that are opened. 
And a seal was a piece of clay that had an imprint put on it. Usually uh, there was a, a, uh, a ring that was used or a marker that was used that identified who the owner of that object was. Uh, these seals, or they call them bully, are uh, still found in numerous places around Israel and the archaeological sites. But basically, to break a seal was an act of authorization. In other words, you couldn't break the seal unless you were authorized. Remember in the gospel story that Jesus' tomb has a seal put across it. Essentially, that would have been uh, basically something that would have, put a, but it would have been stuck across it and like, like a tape almost, and it would have had a clay seal set on it or wax seal, and it would have been, had the imprint of the emperor or the uh, governor on it so that anybody who broke it, who wasn't authorized to break, break it would be uh, in danger of being punished and so the seven seals describe basically scrolls that are broken and as they are broken there's authorization if you will for the judgment that is held within it to begin to come upon the earth this is followed by seven trumpets which are uh, points of declaration. In other words, the trumpets blast and they declare different judgments that God is beginning to bring upon the earth. These things take place in what we call the tribulation period in general. That essentially the first three and a half years are a terrible time for planet earth. But once they get to the middle of the tribulation, there are seven signs that we'll talk about that take place, recorded in chapters 10 to 15 of Revelation, and they unleash what is called the seven last plagues, or the seven vials that contain, the, or bowls that contain the seven last plagues. And these are what Jesus is referring to when he said that uh, if, he did, if there wasn't a culmination or a termination point to these judgments, there would be no life that would survive upon the planet. What changes that is the second coming. So if you want to be technical about it, we do make a distinction that we often refer to the last three and a half years of the seven years of tribulation as being a, a time of great tribulation, uh, a cataclysmic uh, events that are so horrific that if they were allowed to continue on, life upon the planet would be completely extinguished. So that's kind of the flow of the events. And what I want to do is kind of uh, back it up a little bit and begin with the next slide, which we talk about this first period of the seven seals and the seven trumpets. And as I said, the, the seals are really, uh, when, when these seals are beginning to open and the judgments begin to take place, they are the kind of events that are, are terrible and, and destructive, and there's a lot of loss of life. We're not given exact numbers, but there's a loss of life. But nonetheless, they are more the things that open the doors to the more serious set of judgments that begin to take place. It begins, first of all, it says that there are the four horsemen of the apocalypse. We talk about the, the white horse, the red horse, the, the, uh, uh, the black horse, and, and the uh, horse, the, the uh, um, pale horse. And essentially, each of those uh, are linked together. When we start about the white horse, many people, myself included, view this as really beginning of the Antichrist. There's a period, as we talked about in 2 Thessalonians 2, where the enemy or the beast is being restrained. He's referred to as the lawless one there, and he's being restrained. He's being able, hindered from being able to step onto the world stage. 
But suddenly, he is allowed to step onto the world stage. And it's interesting how it's phrased. It says he's given a crown, in other words, given ruling authority, and he rode out as a conqueror bent on conquest. So that he rises to world prominence, but his attention is to conquer the world and, and conquer all those who resist him. This white horse is followed by what is described as a fiery red horse. And basically the fiery red horse takes peace from the earth and to make men slay each other. It's interesting because we find in First Thessalonians 5 that, the prop, that uh, Paul said that prior to this time, men would be saying peace and safety and then sudden destruction would come upon him. So that as much as the world has attempted to avoid the spread of war, we find that war is exactly what comes out of the promises of peace and safety. Uh, and in fact, Daniel, in speaking in parallel prophecy of this event, says of the Antichrist that he will cause astounding devastation and will succeed in whatever he does. So when the Antichrist comes on the world scene, his promise is he's going to fix all the problems. Well, that's kind of what politicians do anyway, but this is going to be different because he is going to accomplish a great deal, but he's going to bring a lot of destruction and death in the wake of what he does. It may be fair to speculate that basically he will terminate anyone who objects or hinders him from accomplishing his uh, takeover of the world scene. What follows as a consequence, and this is almost always the consequence of, of war, is a state of a famine, a pandemic, of pestilence. And that's why it says this black horse follows on the heels of the war and the conflict. And there again is, historically, that is what happens when war begins to spread upon the earth. And then finally, it leads to death, the pale horse. And it's an interesting way that the text talks about the pale horse, the horse that brings uh, death upon the earth, because it says that the, he is given power over one-fourth of the earth. And I'm not quite sure what that means other than the fact that he comes into a place of political dominance over the world and is really the arbitrator of life and death. He can choose, much like Caesar of old who could say, you're, you'll die or you live. Actually, historians can't agree whether this was live and that was die or this was die and that was live. Anyway, but nonetheless, you didn't want to be on the wrong side of that flip. And essentially, he's going to come to a place where he has that kind of authority, that power over life and death. Now, here's the thing, I, I, a little bit of my own personal opinion here. It's interesting to me that as these things are happening, I think it's going to be common for people to kind of see this as being just another chapter in the history of the world. I mean, it's not great stuff, there's some good stuff, there's some bad stuff, but they're not going to really see this as being the beginning of the end. But when we find that changes, when you get to the fifth seal being opened, and that's the seal of martyrdom. And it's, again, it's kind of fascinating how the text reveals it, because it, it talks about how that uh, the, the voice of the martyrs is coming up from underneath the altar, and they're 
basically like the, the incense on the altar of incense that would rise as a symbol of God, of prayers to God. They're praying and say, saying, how long, O Lord, are you going to allow this to continue? Which gives us, I think, a strong suggestion that in this first period, that one of the real victims uh, and focus of the Antichrist power is going to be those who place their faith in Christ, those who are believers. And we'll talk a little bit further on of who are the believers, because as I've stated before, I don't believe that the church is in the tribulation, but there are people who come to faith through some interesting vehicles during this time. What follows after their prayer is really kind of the beginning of some judgments. With the six seals open, there's a, a series of disasters. We might call them natural disasters, um, environmental disasters. It talks about there's great earthquakes. In fact, earthquakes that are so powerful that it talks about mountains and islands being moved. Now, it doesn't give us how much they've moved, but we have certainly record of that kind of thing happening in human history. But it's going to be something of, of a, a dynamic that is readily noticeable. That the face of the earth is going to be significantly altered, not just in a place, but around the world. In fact, when it says the sun will be blackened, oftentimes this is a consequence of volcanic eruptions. That's why often, you know, when we get into conversations about things like global warming, really, to be quite honest, there is more uh, environmental damage <laughs> that's done to, it, to the world through a volcanic eruption many times than all the cars that are on the planet uh, driving in low gear. But bottom line is, there is, there is also, it talks about the blood moon, which oftentimes is an atmospheric event where you find that the sun is reflecting off of the moon but being filtered through the, uh, the clouds that have gathered in the atmosphere. And again, it talks about stars of having fallen, which in a biblical parlance may simply refer to comets and meteors. We call them falling stars when I was a kid. But essentially, there's a lot of stuff going on all, of, all at once that is alarming to the citizens of the planet. And that brings finally to the seventh seal. And the seventh seal is essentially, when it's opened, it is what allows the seven trumpets to begin to unfold. So if you see these events happening in sequence, and then suddenly in heaven the seventh seal is broken because Jesus breaks it. He's the only one we're told earlier that's qualified to do so. And then what follows is trumpets. Now trumpets are declarations. In other words, in those days when they blasted the trumpet, it was to send a message. And the message is, is God's judgment is now beginning to fall on the earth. And we can break these trumpets into basically two categories. The first I call the natural disasters. The, the first thing that's affected, he says, hail and fire mixed with blood. Interesting combination, by the way. Uh, it was hurled down upon the earth and a third of the earth was burned up. Now, when you think of it, a third of the planet being consumed by fire is in itself an ecological disaster beyond remedy. But this is followed then, it says, by, and maybe as a consequence, it says, a third of the seas were turned into blood. A third of the seas are turned into blood. Uh, basically, the sea dies. So first we find that the vegetation is struck, then we find that the seas are struck, and then we find thirdly that it talks about the fresh springs of water being polluted. A third of the fresh waters turned bitter and many people died. 
So these things are beginning to cascade to the point where we find, fourthly, the fourth trumpet sounds, and it says a third of the day was out without light, and also a third of the night. Again, this may have simply been in consequence or sequence because of the other things that had followed. And, again, and what I think is interesting is we read the book of Revelation and we look at the response of people on planet Earth to what's happening. They live in a pretty strong state of denial. In fact, when they finally recognize that God himself is the author of these things, or as the insurance uh, writer says, act of God, when they realize that these things are acts of God, it says they curse God because he's messing up their plans. Which brings me to, if we can have the slide back up here, which is much more attractive. I enjoy looking at it much more than myself. Okay, there we go. Uh, so we have the vegetation, the seas, the waters, and then it talks about the, the, the things happening in the stars. Uh, but most importantly, it says there's a plague of locusts that come upon the earth. Locust, it says, out of the abyss. And the, the abyss, or abuso in Greek, is, is the bottomless pit. And again, there's discussions of how literally do we take this. My rule of thumb is I take it literally unless I have a good reason not to. It's been funny over the years, people have tried to come up with ideas, and I've shared this before, but I, I remember Salem Kirban in his book when I was just a brand new believer, he wrote a book called 666, and he identified who these locusts were that come out of the bottom of his pit, and it was kind of obvious at the time because they had long hair like women, they had breastplates of iron, uh, and the sting was in their tail, and, and they had this way of affecting men for five months when they stung them, that they had these terrible pains and sores and so forth, and he said, it's obvious, it's the Beatles. So... Because he said their music stings your ears. and <laughs> I'm not joking. He really did say that. That's probably why if you ever find that book, you've got to keep it. It's going to be worth something someday. I don't know. Just to me. I mean. But nonetheless, you know, we can speculate and judge. And I think this is always the difficulty when we talk about prophecy. Because when we look at it, we try to see evidences of its fulfillment in our own time. And I think that's okay as, as long as you don't sell the house and invest in that idea. You know, it's, it's really, it could be just a guess, but, and, and we can need to leave it as speculation. Because I think when these things do come to pass, they have a literalist to, us, to it. And these locusts, I mean, these are frightening creatures. They're, they're given power, it says, to kill men. And, no, excuse me, they're not given power to kill them, but only to torture them uh, for five months. So, again, it's a, it's a scary prospect, but what follows afterwards may be even scarier because not only is mankind struck by these uh, uh, insects, if that's what they are, but also peace is struck, is removed from the earth, and the armies that engage in the Battle of Armageddon are released. The, the Euphrates River dries up, and they are beginning to make their... Uh, entry into the world scene. And what it says of this, this army at the end of this first half of the tribulation period is that a third of mankind dies. And it's not clear whether a third of mankind dies because of the combination of all these things or if it's just the combination or simply the consequence of that army. But think about a third of the human population passing away. We're, we're almost at 7 billion people in the world. So, you know, you take 2.3 billion people dying is incomprehensible because it's, it's, it's uh, and, and we're not told whether it's localized in some region or it's across the face of the earth, but essentially the planet and the people on it are in the process of perishing. 
Which brings us to what I call the, the seven signs, uh, seven final signs of the ends. And again, I have another slide that helps us to understand what this is about. Because when you get to chapter 10, it's right in the middle of the tribulation period. It kind of rattles off these series of events that take place. And whether they're separate or simultaneously, we're not told. But the first one is what Jesus identifies, first of all, in verse 16 of Matthew 24. There he, he talked about the abomination of desolation that's spoken of by Daniel the prophet. And we go to Daniel chapter 9, verse 27, and we can read what Daniel forecast. He said, he, speaking of the beast or the Antichrist, will confirm a covenant with many. And he's referring to the Jews. Keep in mind that Daniel's letter is directed towards the Jewish people. And so we know that the subject of these comments are, are Israel. And he says that he makes a covenant with them for seven, for one seven, or literally a period of seven years. So that what's happening when the Antichrist, in the last slide I talked about the Antichrist being the rider on a white horse who comes on the scene, part of his dynamic is entering into a covenant relationship with the nation of Israel. I personally think this is a consequence of the victory that God gives over Gog and Magog. Uh, that's why I call it, in one of my studies, I call it the death of Islam. That essentially, Islam is basically uh, de de defunct. And in that place, he enters into a covenant with this new powerful group on the earth called the Israelis. And he makes a covenant with them for one week. And part of that covenant, I believe, is to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. Now, I don't know how much you know about the, the history and the, and the progress of the temple, but we're talking about a third temple yet to be built. The first temple built by Solomon was dest destroyed by the Babylonians in 569 BC. And then we find that after, in the time of, of Ezra, they return after 70 years in captivity. And Cyrus, the Persian emperor, pays for literally the rebuilding of the temple in Jerusalem. He, we know that he did this all over his newly inherited empire after the Babylonian empire collapsed. And uh, so we have, have the, uh, we actually have archaeological evidence of, of the permission to do this in other places. And it reads almost exactly like the text that we have in the, in the book of Chronicles. But he gives permission to rebuild the temple a second time, and that was destroyed by the Romans in 70 AD. The Jews have been attempting to rebuild the temple ever since. And there's been interesting moments in history where they have actually been close to it, but then everything would fall apart. And so we have this period of time from 70 AD up until the present where there is no temple. Well, part of the reason is that after the Romans, after the second Roman revolt in 135 uh, BC against Hadrian, the Roman emperor, he destroyed the city, uh, literally leveled the city of Jerusalem and renamed it. Uh, Elio Capitolina, after his family name, gave it, in other words, a Roman name uh, in honor of Jupiter or Zeus, the primary god, Capitolinus, referring to the primary god of the Romans, and he built a temple on top of where the temple had once been, a temple to Jupiter. Later on, when, when, uh, the, uh, when Constantine became the emperor in, in, in 311 AD, he tore down that temple and left it a ruin. 
Because even though he was the first Christian emperor, he was, there was a real antagonism towards the Jews. And so he left the Temple Mount a ruin. And for the next few hundred years, it was basically the Jerusalem city dump. And then in 70, 700, uh, the, the Muslims built a dome on top of the Temple Mount and a mosque. And so when you look at today where the Jerusalem temple once stood, there is the Golden Dome, Dome of the Rock, which is according to uh, later uh, Muslim tradition, that's where Muhammad ascended into heaven on his nightly journey, uh, which never happened. Muhammad never went to Jerusalem and so forth and so on, but some people never let facts confuse them. Um, But the bottom line is that this has remained the, the piece of architecture. And the real challenge even today is those who want to rebuild the temple, the Dome of the Rock is built exactly on top of the, the footings that the original temple was built. And so that building has to be removed in order for the temple to be rebuilt. Now, there are other theories, but I'm right. So that building has to be removed. And I believe that when Gog and Magog take place, that that building may be one of the uh, casualties of that conflict and there the site will be opened and a temple rebuilt and the Antichrist joins in with the Jews and enters into a covenant with them and it may be part of the goal that we've talked about build, making Jerusalem into the universal capital of the world. As I mentioned uh, a few weeks ago that it is the only city in the world today that is recognized by the United Nation as being an international city in other words, they initially, in 1949, they declared it to be so, so that the Jews and the Arabs and the Christians would all start fighting, stop fighting over it. That didn't work very well, like most of the ideas the UN has. But nonetheless, it still has that legal stature. And so uh, I think that that's probably where the Antichrist is going to center his capital. But what Daniel tells us, he goes on to say, in the middle of the seven, in other words, at the three-and-a-half-year point, he will put an end to sacrifice and offering. He will stop the circus. So picture in your mind, the Jews now, after thousands of years, have rebuilt the temple upon the Temple Mount. And, is, and you realize that there are, there are people who are working very hard to do this, even as we speak. I mean, all of the furnishings have already been constructed. Even the golden candelabra, which cost, at the time it was built, uh, involved over a million dollars in gold just to construct this solid gold, seven-foot-tall uh, candelabra, uh, menorah. And so that it says that in, they rebuilt this thing and they've started, the very first thing they do is offer sacrifice. Keep in mind that for the Jews, not being able to offer sacrifice is the worst of situations because there is no thing in no way under Judaism that you can have remission of your sins without offering animal sacrifices on the altar in Jerusalem. So in the days of Ezra, when they came back, the very first thing they did was they rebuilt the altar and began to offer sacrifice before they even laid the foundation of the temple itself, because that is central to the idea of being a Jew. It's the blood sacrifice and atonement for their sins. The Jews have been unable to do that ever since, and they have really, according to their own theology, are still bearing the weight of sin that is unremitted because they cannot offer that sacrifice. So the very first thing they're going to do is offer a sacrifice. This is central to everything, to being really a literal Jew in the fullest biblical sense. And he stops that. 
And he says, and on a wing of the temple, he set up an abomination that causes desolation until the end that is decreed is poured out on him. What is this abomination of desolation? It's literally, we would turn the word, phrase around, something so abominable, it makes the place a desolation in, in the eyes of God. It's the ultimate act of sacrilege. And what we find in Revelation is that the, the beast create, has an image made of himself and of the dragon, and he commands the world to worship him. And so it seems logical that the abomination of desolation is the image of the beast that's set up on a wing of the temple and he is declared to be God and the object of worship because it is within that same context that we find the mark of the beast becomes activated. But there's a few things that happen in consequence of that. We're also told, secondly, in the order of these texts, that there are two witnesses who are killed and their bodies are left laying in the streets of Jerusalem. We are not introduced to who they are prior to this, and there's endless speculation as to who the two witnesses are. Uh, and I think, quite honestly, your guess is as good as mine. But when we talked earlier about martyrs and people dying in the first part of the tribulation, it undoubtedly is people who are responding to the message of these two men. They're prophesying the whole time against the Antichrist and against everything that he's doing, his kingdom and so forth, and they're proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. And they are allowed, nobody can touch them. God preserves them that first three and a half years until their ministry is done and then the Antichrist is able to kill them and their bodies are left laying in the street. Interesting statement there, though, a phrase that says, and the whole world watched their bodies lying in the street. You know, again, we talk about the times in which we live. This is the first time in human history where the whole world can witness anything. In fact, you know, you got Facebook, we can witness far more than we ever want to witness. But you can see everything all the time live taking place upon the planet. And so uh, I find this is kind of interesting in light of the times in which we live. It's at that point, if you remember in Matthew 24, when he talked about the abomination of desolation, and, and he went on to say, and those who live in Jerusalem, in Judea, should flee into the wilderness. And he says, don't take anything with you and, and pray that it's not on a Sabbath. So that statement is applying to Jews. It's talking about this moment in the midst of the tribulation. He's saying to the Jews, you need to flee and get away from here because destruction is going to be coming upon you. And that's where we find in Revelation, it talks about the woman who has, you know, the stars and the moon around her. Basically, this is a description of Jerusalem, I mean, uh, excuse me, Israel. This is that Israel that Paul speaks about in Romans 11 who says in the last day all Israel shall be saved. And they're told to flee into the wilderness. Now there's a, a common uh, uh, story told that where they're going to flee is to um, Petra in Jordan. And I find this really interesting because uh, been to Petra and uh, <laughs> uh, you know, I guess if they wanted to be found it would be a good place to go because it's hardly a secret place. It's very easy to get there. In fact, I'll tell you a little story since I have so much time. Um, when, the, when we went there, 
you have to walk through this narrow cavern. I mean, it's, there's walls that go up, up and I don't know, they must be at least 100 feet straight up on either side. And the, the, the roadway is probably 20 to 30 feet wide at most places. And you walk through this long serpentine opening in the mountains until suddenly you come to what's called the treasury and you see this massive building carved literally out of the stone walls. Very, very amazing experience. But as we walked through there, as we were beginning our trip down there, I remember this Jordanian guide that we had, because the Israeli guide wasn't allowed to, to accompany us. This Jordanian guide said to us, he said, just walk down there and I'll meet you. And I, you know, I thought, okay. So we just started walking down. We walked all the way down. Finally, we got to the end of the a whole a city area where there was nowhere else to go. We were up against the final wall. And suddenly I see this taxi cab coming down the mountain back and forth, switchbacking down the hill, and drives up, stops right in front of me, and our guide gets out. <laughs> and I thought, this is not a very secret place. <laughs> so again, that's a common story that they're going to flee to Petra. I don't know where they're going to flee. I don't know how they're going to flee, but my guess is it's not going to be there. But let me also say this. If they decide to go there, I have no complaints. I'll be watching from the bleachers. Anyway, but the woman flees and Israel flees into the wilderness. This is what Paul, or excuse me, Jesus is speaking about in Matthew 24. And then he says that the great dragon, which we know as Satan, is cast down to the earth. Now, Jesus made the statement of the gospel. He said, I saw Satan thrown out of heaven. <laughs> he makes that statement. He apparently is speaking of that which was yet to come. Because as we read in Job, he's going to and fro before the throne of God, accusing the brethren and so forth. But he's cast upon the earth. In other words, we might say at this moment, Satan's wings are clipped. And he pours himself fully into his agenda. It's at that point we find that the beast is, I say, unleashed. Because he is no longer veiled in who he is. And that's also where it talks about he requires the mark of the beast. So in people who often worry about uh, if I use a debit card, am I taking the mark of the beast or something like that. Uh, the mark of the beast doesn't really become operative until the middle of the tribulation. And so I don't think you and I, if, that we're in much danger of being the recipients of that. But also something else happens. It talks about 144,000, 12,000 from each of the tribes of Israel who are raptured. Again, many people uh, give all sorts of figurative or metaphorical or allegorical interpretations. There are any number of religious movements who say they have the 144,000, the Seventh-day Adventist Church, the Jehovah Witnesses, uh, the Mormons. They all claim that they are the recipients of the 144,000. But this, if we take the text literally, it says it's 12,000 uh, unmarried Jews from the 12 tribes of Israel. So uh, I interpret that to mean that there's 12,000 from 12 tribes from Israel, and that comes to 144,000. It's meant in the most literal way. Um, because we really have no really good justification for interpreting it any differently. But they are suddenly raptured, and I suspect that they are people, these are Jews who have responded to the preaching of the two witnesses. But now the two witnesses have gone. The 144,000 are no longer there to witness. Uh, how does God get the word out? Well, that's where we have the seventh sign that's given, that the gospel is proclaimed. Uh, the gospel is proclaimed by angels flying through heaven. It says there are angels flying through heaven proclaiming the everlasting gospel. Um, and people, I think, 
get saved as a consequence because it goes on to inform us that if you give your life to Christ during this time, you will pay with it for, by decapitation. So it's a, it's a costly thing, but there are those who are going to get saved all the way through the tribulation period. Which brings me really to the, last, the second part of the tribulation period in our last slide. Um, the final three and a half years. And this is the seven plagues. And we again, Jesus referred to it as the great tribulation, meaning that the intensity is going to be so astoundingly great that, that it would literally destroy the entire planet if it wasn't brought to a close. But it begins with, first of all, talking about uh, loathsome sores that fall upon. It says... In, in, in verse 15, chapter 15, verse 1, it says, Seven angels with the seven last plagues last because with them God's wrath is completed. He says, Ugly and painful sores on those who had the mark or worshiped the beast. So those who receive the mark of the beast have these ugly, loathsome sores that erupt upon their bodies. I'll let your imagination fill in the details. That secondly, it says that the sea dies, that everything in the sea is dead. Now, we understand, hopefully, that, that if the sea were to die, that means life on the planet Earth would come to an end within a relatively short period of time. But thirdly, it says that the rivers and the springs of water, they became as blood. And, and because, and he adds commentary-wise, it says, you have given them blood to drink as they deserve. And then fourthly, it says the sun is given power to scorch people with fire and they were seared with an intense heat. And we can see how these things can kind of follow in course. One would again lead to another. But fifthly, it says, and the beast and his kingdom was plunged into darkness and men gnawed their tongues in agony. And then six, it says, they gathered the kings together to a place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. And it's Armageddon, which is it, literally the word is a, a Greek transliteration of Harmigodon in Hebrew, which means the Valley of Megiddo. And the Valley of Megiddo is a, a massive 300-mile square valley in Israel that is really one of the most agriculturally fruitful places because the topsoil in the valley is about 300 feet deep. And so it's, it's really an amazing, it was a swamp, the, the Jews bought it back in the early uh, 20th century, early 1900s, uh, from the Arabs that owned it, they, they purchased it from them, and they were glad to sell it because it was just a swamp that bred malaria and nobody did anything with it. And they have transformed it by draining the swamps, uh, making it into an agricultural uh, paradise in many ways, so that uh, a large percentage of the Israeli uh, goods that are uh, foods that are produced are produced out of this valley. But here it is also that uh, General George Allenby said after wor World War I that it was the most natural battlefield on the planet. Uh, it's, it, and it has been the scene of well over 300 battles throughout history, going all the way back to Tutmos III in 1400 BC up until uh, the end of World War I. It has been the scene of major battles throughout history, and it says that there is going to be the final battle that will be the conclusion of the uh, kingdom of the Antichrist and his reign upon the earth. Uh, and finally, it says in verse 7 that Babylon is fallen, is fallen. Basically, the city and the religious system that supports it and the economy that it promotes all are destroyed and collapsed and are brought to an end 
And primarily, it's the midst of this battle that we have the second coming of Christ. So that when it, we look at there, it says the, the seventh plague is poured out, uh, a voice cries out from heaven, it is done, it is finished. And now the kingdom of our God is beginning to be established upon the earth. In fact, uh, Revelations 19.11 describes it. It says, I saw heaven standing opened and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. Just a side note, isn't it interesting that the Antichrist initiates his kingdom? It says riding in on a white horse. But when Christ, because he is the false Christ, when Christ comes, he comes riding in on a white horse as well, whose rider, in contrast, is faithful and is true. With justice he judge, judges and makes war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. In other words, he's king of kings and lord of lords. He has a name written on him that no one, who, no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood. His name is the word of God. And the armies of heaven, which I think is the church primarily, were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. And out of his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter, quoting the prophet Isaiah. And he treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Now, keep in mind, the second coming is not the end of the book of Revelation. Uh, we actually have a few more chapters to go. And there are things that follow we call the post-tribulation events. Uh, that First of all, we'll, we'll read about the judgment of the false, Christ, the false prophet and the false church, uh, the judgment of the beast and his kingdom. And we'll find that uh, there's a, 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 a Satan is bound for a thousand years and the millennial reign of Christ is initiated where Christ will reign upon the same earth for a thousand years. Much of the prophecies that we read in the, in the book of Isaiah, in the second part of Isaiah's prophecy, describe what the earth is like during this thousand year reign of Christ upon the earth. So that next weekend, next Wednesday, when we get into this, we're going to talk about those events and other things that are really, I think, quite fascinating because part of it is he says he sees, he talks about the great white throne judgment and he talks about the second death. And these are terms and, and things that confuse people because the Bible speaks about different judgments to the dead and what happens when people die and what happens with people who die outside of Christ as opposed to those who are in Christ. Um, we'll talk about what the millennium looks like, how it begins, what, it, what it's like in its transition, and when, how it finally ends, and how that the end of the story is not perfection of the earth, but rather the replacement of the earth. There's a new Jerusalem that's built upon a new heaven and a new earth. And just, you know, one of the things that becomes very obvious when you begin to do the math, the new Jerusalem won't fit on the current earth. So it's a, it's a very large cube. So anyway, we're going to get into those details. There's actually quite a bit of information to still cover in the events that we can look forward to that describe our final destiny and destination as those who believe and follow in Jesus Christ. You and I look at life through this limited paracope of time, you know, and we, we, we see from birth to death, and that's our existence, or even when we look at human history uh, for the last 10,000 years, the truth of the matter is that's going to be a blip in time because it's all preparation for what we have been created for, not for time, 
but we've been created for eternity. And what does that eternity look like? And that's what we'll delve into last week or next week. <laughs> Whew. Now I can take, catch my breath. Any questions? No, let's pray. Father God, I ask that you would help us to get in our minds a, a, a glimpse of these things in such a way that we can begin to live in the hope of what is to come. Because in this life, Lord, we go through some pretty tough stuff. That, Lord, we become quite familiar with disappointment and heartbreak and loss and all the rest, Lord. And I just ask that we could learn to put our hope in a new heaven and a new earth, Lord, uh, and not upon this earth and this heaven. We pray this grace for this grace, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. You want to stand?